So thanks for coming back. This is night number four of our series. And uh, tonight's session is going to be looking at the cultural effects of technology by asking how the rapid increase in technological advances is affecting the way people think and the way people respond to their world on a mass scale. Because after all, the world has become much smaller as a result of technology, hasn't it? We can talk to people on the opposite side of the globe very quickly uh, without much trouble these days. But I wonder how that has affected the way we think, even as cultures around the globe. Has it changed us? Has it changed us as Christians and the way we live our lives? Cultural thought is being shaped by the content of our media. We know that. That's pretty obvious. And by the media itself in ways that we may not have recognized up until now. So we're going to uh, see if we can discern that tonight. What are the goals tonight? I'm going to give these uh, as quickly as possible. And by the way, again, we're not going to do a break halfway through. Just if, if you have to use the bathroom, if you have to take a break, whatever, just get up. Um, feel free. Um, you don't have to stay planted in your chair, but we're not going to take a break. We're going to motor through tonight. Um, I have a lot of work to do, and we're going to have some, hopefully we're going to enjoy it and have some fun together as well. What are our goals? Our goals tonight, first of all, is to determine the difference between using technology as a tool and using technology as an idol. There's a difference between the two. Secondly, we're going to recognize the effects of the idolatry of technology in our culture. Yes, we're going to be talking a lot about idols tonight. Maybe you've noticed already in the last three classes that each night we're taking some kind of cultural issue, but then we're weaving into that some kind of theological response, right? So the first night we looked at worldviews. What was the second night? Uh, we looked at truth. The third night we looked at uh, the Bible and the very nature and what the Bible is and what the Bible says about itself. Tonight we're going to be looking at idolatry and what Scripture has to say about that and how it works out in our culture today. Our final goal is to consider two extremes in our culture due to technology and media. The one extreme to the far end is individualism. Social media has made us the most lonely people in history, even though that we are the most connected people. Isn't that strange? And we hear it over and over again. Suicide rates are up, depression and so on. Friends are not really friends, that kind of thing. So on the one extreme, we have individualism where we all just do what we want to do. We answer to ourselves. We don't answer to anyone else. We make all of our decisions based on our own interests and not the interests of those around us. But at the other end of the spectrum, we're going to be looking at uh, the other extreme of living in, shall we say, collectivism or communism? Right, Living in a full-blown community where the individual does not matter, all that matters is the big picture, the masses, and so on. 
So we're going to looking at we're going to look at how the Bible upholds a balanced view between those two extremes. So before we get into our text, our opening text tonight, we're just going to ask for God's help to clear our minds. It's been a big day, long day, and help us to think through these issues. All right. So Lord, thank you for bringing us together tonight in this place. We want to seek you tonight and seek your voice, Lord. Speak to us. This is a lecture. It's not a sermon. But in this lecture, Lord, we are going to dig into your word. We are going to work hard. And we just ask that you will speak and reward us as a result of coming here tonight to meet with you. Lord, be with us. Glorify your son, Jesus not only in this room tonight, but in our lives going forward as a result of what we learned tonight. We ask this again for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, one other housekeeping thing again. Uh, my number is up there for you to text in questions. We'll see. If we're lucky, we might get 10, 15 minutes at the end. We'll see. Uh, if you have any questions about tonight, make sure they're relevant for the subject matter tonight. Um, or the weeks that have passed, um, just make sure to text those questions in. If you have other questions about other things that are bothering you, uh, feel free to uh, approach me or Pastor Chris is at the back tonight, by the way. Run in the booth, all right? This is the body of Christ at work right now. So, uh, of course, he's available too. So any questions unrelated to our topics in this series or whatever, please feel free to come to us personally. Um, but if you're going to text in questions, just make sure they're something to do with the subject matter over the weeks that you've been thinking about, wondering about, confused about, and so on. All right, our opening text tonight is 1 John 5. 1 John 5, verse 20. John says uh, to the, the people that he was writing to after everything else, this is the close of his letter to these Christians. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. Notice this last statement. Little children, he's talking to his spiritual children, that he was an elder over little children, keep yourselves from idols. It seems really random. If you read through all five chapters of 1 John, you're going to think that last statement sounds really, really odd. Because not once does he mention a statue or an idol of some kind all the way through the letter. So I wonder what he's talking about. It would seem odd until we understand that idols are not merely physical objects or statues. Here's a statement for you tonight that I want us to remember, and as we go through, we're going to follow this and trace this. As a culture, we reflect our idols. As a culture, we reflect our idols. We're going to define what that is in a little bit. As individuals, we reflect what or who we worship. We must know who is true before we can be sure what is true? Now notice these verses. Again, little Bible study tip. When you're studying Scripture, when you're trying to observe the text of Scripture, 
One of the things we look for are repeated words. When words are repeated, kind of gives us a little bit of a signal into what the writer was referring to or, or emphasizing. And in this case, I think you probably know what it was. There it is. Three times over, he uses the word true. He wants these people to know what's true. He wants them to be sure that they have eternal life. If you read through the text, you'll see that. He wants them to, be, to have assurance that when they die, they're going to be with God forever. He wants them to know that and be confident in that. And that all comes from what is true as opposed to what is false. What is false, John tells us very clearly, is the idols. Keep yourselves from idols, from false objects of worship. All right, so the first thing we're going to do tonight is define idolatry. And the way we're going to do that, you're never going to read that text, but uh, you can turn to it if uh, you have your Bible with you. Hopefully you've brought your Bible with you. Acts 17, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 31. It's the story of Paul in Athens, Greece, uh, when he stood on what we know as Mars Hill, and he addressed a bunch of idol worshipers, in Greek culture at that time. Um, but we're going to be looking at, we're going to be noticing that in Scripture, there is a link between technology. Yes, the, the word for technology, the, the original word for technology is actually in the Bible. Don't know if you knew that, but now you do. So at least you can go home tonight after everything else and say, well, I learned something I didn't know before. And technology is linked with idolatry. Not always, but at times. First thing we want to understand before we get into this text is that technology in the Bible has the idea of creating something from something, okay? God is the only one who creates something from nothing. But in Scripture, technology was really the creation of something out of something. And that is exactly what God told us to do in the beginning when he told us to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth, to take the natural resources of the world, change them into things that are useful for everyday life. Now, the Greek term in this text is the term techne. It means a skill or a trade. Jesus was known as a, in Greek, tectone, tectone. One who constructs something, one who builds. Most English Bibles call him a carpenter, but he may not have worked with wood. He may have worked with stone, he may have worked with laying bricks. He may have been a mason. We don't exactly know. The word tectone means builder. That's what his father did, and, and uh, Matthew 13, is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the tectone's son? It's actually the, where we get our English word technology. It has, over time, I'm not trying to make a direct link here between the English word and the Greek word, but we just want to notice that this is where the, the English word actually comes from. It has changed its meaning over time, but really the principle's still there, isn't it? The principle's still there that we're building something out of something. This is our technology right now, right? It's many things have been built out of something right here in our smartphones. So it's just a, maybe a more advanced, more complicated version of you know, creating the wheel or creating large bricks to build massive structures that they used to build in Greek culture at that time in the ancient Near East. 
uh, whatever it is, but that, that was the case. So Paul lands in Athens, and he's there for a little while, and he's standing in the midst in uh, Acts 17, verse 22. He's standing in the midst of Aropagus, which was Mars Hill, and he says to them, he addresses them, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I've passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now this is interesting because what Paul, Paul does is he starts with what they know. He starts right where they're at. They were very stu- superstitious people and they had all these gods for different things. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But just in case they missed one, they had a monument set up to the unknown God, to the one maybe we haven't realized yet, we haven't discovered yet. Right? Our culture is still discovering things all the time and still exploring still. Paul takes that and uses it to say, hey, I'm going to tell you about a God you forgot about. Listen to this. He's the God who made the world, verse 24, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, that doesn't sound like any of the idols or the gods that they worshipped. This God sounds like he rules everything. It's very unique. And, verse 26, he made from one every nation, one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods. So every one of us has been given a specific period of time in history and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now here it is. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Here's the word techne right here. An image formed by art and imagination of man. So something is formed out of something else. An image formed by art and imagination of man. Well, I'd say there's a lot of artistry that goes into a smartphone a lot of imagination that went into this, a process of as, you know, how this was developed and so on. We're going to see some links here. The times of ignorance God overlooked, Paul says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, there's a lot of attributes of God that are there, but we want to notice right away that the theme of this address is about the true knowledge of God. That's what he's talking about. They'd carefully crafted shrines to all the gods that they could conceive of, and they were still fearful they'd left one out. They willingly admitted their limited knowledge. Paul is informing them of the one true God that they admit to being ignorant of. So in this address, he uses the word techne to describe something made from something. It's artistic, it's beautiful to look at, it's attractive, it, it's 
originated out of the imagination of man, some of that is very good. If you look at it on its face, we're going to notice some of that is quite good. But maybe not. Just want to notice this before we go on to the second point here. This is informative. This is really informative what an idol in the ancient Near East was, but it's also informative in identifying cultural idols today. All right, so here's our second point. Our second point is that created objects, idols, idolatry, they were created objects used for wrong purposes. All right, they're used for wrong purposes. So Paul contrasts the one true God who was created and he sourced everything to an image that was formed by art and imagination of man. Paul is not saying that art and imagination are wrong. It's not what he's saying. When we create things through artistic ability and imagination, we are reflecting actually our identity as image of God, Imago Dei. We talked about that before. We are little creators, creating something out of something. That's a good thing. Genesis 1.28, that's what God meant when he said to subdue the earth. But when that created thing becomes the imagined creator or source, it has replaced God. Okay, so there are a number of There are a number of examples of this in Scripture, just to bring them out for a moment, that you can actually take a good thing and actually use it for wrong things. One of them that comes to mind immediately is the serpent on the pole, the brass serpent on the pole in Numbers 21. Maybe you know that story. The people were in the wilderness. They had sinned against God. God withdrew his protection from the people in the wilderness and the poisonous serpents that were all over the desert, they just came and started biting the people. And the people were dying from the poisonous snake bites and God told Abraham to set up a brass serpent on a pole and anyone who looked lived. Now, what was the purpose of that brass serpent? Again, there was art, there was imagination in Moses making that serpent and putting it up on a pole. What was the point of that serpent? It was not the source of their healing. It was a symbol of their faith in the God who told them to look. It gave them an object to look at and a way to actually trust God and respond to what God had said. But by 2 Kings 18, we're talking centuries, generations later, Hezekiah destroys the same serpent on a pole that now had become something that was worshipped as the actual source of salvation and healing. They actually named it Nehushtan, which I think means brass or something like that, but they actually gave it a name. I'm just wondering, who was it stuck this in their trunk as they were going through the desert and decided this would be a good thing to hold on to? Why not? I mean, it would be a good thing to... a good. Uh, memoriam to remember God's faithfulness in the wilderness, but someone kept it. Maybe it was in an attic somewhere and someone pulled it out at some point when they had entered the promised land and thought, hmm, look at this. Oh, I remember this story. I remember that this is significant. You know what we need to do? We need to set this up. And over time, you know what we need to do? We need to name it. You know, when you name something, you've just made it a being. You've made it a person right? And that's what they did. They named it. And so something good became something bad. 
the gold and silver that was used in, with artistry and imagination to build the tabernacle in which people worshipped Yahweh, the one true God. That same gold was used to build a calf out of gold. Not so good. That was not from God, and it certainly wasn't the source of their redemption from Egypt. Do you see how this works? The question is, how do we identify a wrong use of a created thing? We're going to look at that tonight. That needs to be discussed. Here's the third thing. Created objects, idolatry really describes created objects being used as a source. So now not just being used for wrong purposes, but let's zero in. We're just kind of focusing in even further with our microscope on the idea of a created object being used as a source. Okay, so uh, Paul is standing in Mars Hill and there's all throughout Athens, there are all these monuments and statues that were representatives. Okay, they weren't the actual thing. The Greeks weren't that silly. They knew they were representatives, but what they represented was what people in their imagination thought these particular gods looked like. The gods themselves were made up in their minds, and the statues and how they looked and the images of them were made up in their minds as well. All right, so what I, what I want to do is I want to show you a list of some of these Greek idols, okay, and give you an idea of what's going on. But here's the idea uh, that the Greeks had gods for everything. Each god was viewed as a source or champion of something, okay? So here's a list of them. And uh, just to give you a, a, a little idea, I'm going to go through the list a little bit. And then yeah, I think it's pretty clear, self-explanatory as to what's going on. You can look these up for yourself as well. But Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty. In fact, uh, there were temples, shrines that were set up and uh, part of the worship were uh, prostitutes that uh, welcomed the worshipers into those temples to worship the goddess Aphrodite. But notice again, there's a heart desire that was reflected in the culture. The heart desire was beauty, human natural beauty. Ares was the god of war. Again, there's a heart desire that's reflected, the heart desire of power, military might. Artemis, was the goddess of fertility and wealth. In other words, again, a reflection of a culture's infatuation with money and wealth. Hephaestus was the god of craftsmanship or achievement, right? The heart desire that is reflected is the heart desire of achievement. Aeolus, the god of wind and air. Think about this, climate change right now, right? People are focused on the environment and everything about it. Aeolus, again, the heart desire for good weather and for control over weather patterns and so on. Alastor, avenger of evil deeds. You can see how that reflected it. A hunger for justice. Oh man, this one's going to be Asclepius. I don't know how to say it. I'm not Greek. But uh, the god of medicine. Again, that cult, it's very hard to, to recognize these without seeing them in our own culture. We may not worship the Greek god behind it, but we certainly worship the heart desire for health and well-being. Kronos, again, chronology, right? The god of time. 
We worship our schedules. We try to pack so much into our days, thinking that if we could just be more productive, we'll be more fulfilled. It was no different for the Greeks in their culture. Eros, the god of sexual desire. Again, very clear, reflected in their culture. Uh, A desire for sex and for sexual passion. Not far removed from ours. Zealous or zealous the God of dedication. Again, there's that heart desire for zeal and passion. We love watching people who dig in with all their might in whatever it is, sports, uh, politics, whatever it is. Wow, he really means what he says, you know? We love that. This list makes it obvious that heart idols have not changed. It's very clear. Our present culture is still pursuing all of these desires, aren't they? In fact, yeah, I'm going to be hard on us tonight. It's probably true in this room that most of us, if we examine our hearts, can see that some of these heart idols are sitting there right now, right? I'll talk about myself, but I need to examine my own heart tonight to see how many of these hungers, desires are defining the way that I make choices in my own life. Still pursuing these desires, but we're pursuing them from the wrong sources. The wrong sources. In fact, what happens? Let's, let's take the cultural hunger for sexual desire, sexual passion. The problem is what was a good gift from the giver that we're going to talk about next week. Little tease there has become the giver itself. And now people worship at the shrines of sexual passion and sexual lust with explicit material and hookups and so on. Why? What are we doing? We've exchanged the gift for the giver. And now what was a good gift from a creator who told us how to use it well and use it right so that it could... It could be pleasing and bring joy and rejoicing and worship to the creator. We've changed that into the giver itself. And we've removed the giver, the true giver, God, from the equation. All right, next. Uh, The last one in this section of defining idolatry, created objects, idolatry are created objects that become our masters. They become masters. Over time, they enslave us. We seek them as a source of something that gratifies us or that we think is going to please us and fulfill us. And in the end, we begin, we become enslaved. We become slaves to the wrong master. And that's exactly what had happened in Athens when Paul was standing on Mars Hill and he's seeking to tell these people that there's true freedom in the one true God. He's going to come back. He's going to judge the earth. There's nothing that we can do to cancel him. We looked at that last week. He's coming back and there's true freedom in him. He's the giver of everything. That's what Paul had said to them. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything that we have. He's not far from any one of us. If we'd read back in Acts 17, we would have read about how Paul, while he was waiting in 
in Athens in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was just full of idols. Why? Because a city full of idols is a city full of enslavement. And I think we can look around our culture and see the exact same thing going on. That we have a city, a province, a nation, a world full of idols and therefore full of people who are enslaved to the wrong master. So our opening claim that I'm going to have to prove is that our post-Christian culture worships technological advancement as the giver of all that our hearts hunger for. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we will be swept up into pursuing the wrong source for wrong rewards. These advancements, these technological advancements, intended as tools, begin to master us. Have you felt that? They begin to master us, and we have become enslaved, and maybe we don't even know it. We're not even aware. All right, so where are we going to go? What we're going to do is take a larger look at the effects of technology on culture. And what we're going to begin by defining media. What is media? I think most of us have ideas in our minds of when we hear terms like that of what it is. When we hear media, maybe we think, um, you know, the mainstream media or whatever name you want to give to them, or social media, right? And we're always thinking about content. We're always thinking about words put together with a message. But I want you to just kind of open that box a little bit tonight and try to grasp maybe what is a new concept to most of us that maybe you've never heard before, but I want to try and, and break it down to what media actually is. So what we're going to do is define it first. The term media is plural for medium, a medium. And a medium is anything that is intermediate between us and the surrounding world. In other words, a medium is an extension of ourselves. Let me give you some examples. Okay, so a medium. Uh, a hammer is an extension of my arm and my fist. So if I were to take my fist and try to bang a nail into wood, not a great idea. I think most of us are aware of that. Not a good idea. But an extension of my arm with a metal head on it is something that I can use. It's useful. It's a medium. It's between me and the nail, and it's going to preserve me, and it's going to make me effective in nailing the nail. A camera or a telescope or a set of binoculars, whichever you pick, is an extension of our eyes, right? These glasses are an extension of my eyes. I take them off, you all become just a little fuzzier than you were a moment ago, right? A, a smoke detector or carbon monoxide detector, is an extension of our nose. It smells things that we may not pick up, especially when we're sleeping. Smartphones are an extension of human consciousness, aren't they? They bring us into new worlds that we 
didn't know existed before. Now, where did we get this from? I'm going to introduce you to someone tonight. No, he's not a cultural Marxist. Uh, in fact, he was, he was Canadian, so this is maybe one of our claims to fame here. Uh, but this guy, Marshall McLuhan, uh, he was born in Edmonton. He w- went to school in Winnipeg, and then I believe he was in Cambridge for a while. He converted to actually Catholicism and was greatly influenced by the writings of G.K. Chesterton. And he lived in the uh, mid-20th century. Uh, He became very popular, very famous in the 1960s. He was actually very, ironically, in the 1960s, he he became popular with, you know, um, the liberal movement of that time period because of what he was teaching. This guy was a genius. And some of the things he said, the reason why he is still listened to today is because some of the things he predicted, he actually predicted the World Wide Web 30 years before the web became a thing at all. He predicted that it was going to happen. He actually taught, at one point, he taught in the University of Windsor, not very far away, Assumption College. Um, But ultimately, he spent most of his years at the University of Toronto, first as an English professor and then studying the effects of media in media analysis. So he was trying to understand how does media affect us psychologically and socially? And he had a lot to say. And one of the biggest things that he had to say was this statement right here, very small statement, but the medium is the message. Now, what did he mean? I have to explain this as best I can. What he meant by this statement, the medium is the message, that before before a medium, let's say, Uh, a smartphone has any message on the screen before it does it it, it's already affected you it's already given you a message that has changed your world Um, one of the let let me just read some of the things that he said here is uh, one of his statements in a culture like ours long accustomed to splitting and dividing all things as a means of control That's really what technology is, right? We just keep splitting and dividing all things uh, as a means of control. It sometimes is a bit of a shock to be reminded that in operational and practical fact, the medium is the message, not the content. The content is another form of medium, but the medium itself is a message. This is merely to say that the personal and social consequences of any medium even a hammer or binoculars or whatever the new invention is. We're going to try and prove this. I'm going to give you some examples, so please just stick with me here. Uh, That is, any extension of ourselves, they result from the new scale that is introduced into our affairs by each extension of ourselves and by any new technology. So here is McLuhan's basic message. Each type of technology or medium changes our world. It just does. And therefore, it changes us. It has an impact on us. Whether we know it or not, like it or not, think it or not, doesn't matter. It still changes us. And the content of that technology is just another medium. And so he would analyze different mediums and say, okay, how does this enha- what does this enhance? So, for instance, a radio enhances sound. It enhances the spoken word. It enhances music. It amplifies that, sends it out farther than we could with our natural voice. Obsolescence. He also looked at what becomes obsolete because of this new technology. So this technology, does it replace something? So for instance, 
This iPad might replace a printed Bible, but this printed Bible, and this used to be a big deal, but this printed Bible replaced a technology back in the day too called a scroll, right? And before that, there were parchments and so on. But every new technology replaces something else. Not always. For instance, light bulbs haven't replaced candles. We still use candles, but we don't use them in the same way that we used to, right? He actually uses uh, the invention of the light bulb as, a, as an example of this. He says, uh, McLuhan said, whether the light is being used for brain surgery, so this is the electric light, when it was produced by Edison, it changed everything. It created new spaces. It created new possibilities. It made dark things bright, right? And he says, whether the light, the electric light, is being used for brain surgery or night baseball is really a matter of indifference. It could be argued that these activities are in some way the content of the electric light. So what they're being used at for is a new content of that light, right? But a light is a light, since they couldn't exist without the electric light. This fact merely underlines the point that the medium is the message because it is the medium that shapes and controls the scale and the form of human association and action. All right, so how does this work out in history? This is a difficult concept to get our minds around, so, and I get that, I get that. So. I don't want to rush through this, but I, I really need us to understand how this works and how, yes, technology today, as it is, like, it used to be like this, straight line, right? Our advancements. And now we are just rapidly, we are going almost vertical so fast with our advancements. And all of that is changing the way we think. Even between generations of older, middle-aged, younger, and so on, um, my kids, were born into a world where this, is, this was just something they had. That's not the world I grew up in. I remember when email was a huge thing. It's like, wow, you can actually send a letter and it gets there in like seconds? What is that all about, right? Um, and, and so on. So it's advancing, but what is it? how does this work? Well, here are a few historical examples of media's effects on culture and how it changes the way we think. The first one is, is just one that I want to make you aware of, just to think through a little bit. Uh, I'm not a linguist at all, but language is the conveyance of information. The Bible has something to say about this. In fact, there's an account in Genesis 11 about people after the Noahic flood who had, they were trying to set up a city and build a large tower and make a big name for themselves and make sure that they all stayed together in one place and build a reputation. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And God looked down, he saw them and he said, they are one people, and they all have one language. Now, that's interesting. Because what happens in this story is people were separated by language, not skin color. Interesting. Because God says nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is very, very key to our culture today. 
and where we're heading. We're going to get to that. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Because it's a scary thing if nothing is out of our reach. If we just have the potential to do everything that we want. And folks, that's where we're at. That is where we're at. The entire world now is now a new Babel, city of Babel, where we're all kind of working, building, making a name for ourselves, a name outside of God. We don't need God anymore. We've got this covered. That's where we're at. But language affects not just vocabulary and how we speak, but even through the terms, we have different ways of thinking in different cultures. Now, you'll notice I put two up here, phonetic and ideographic language. One is, happens to be English, but phonetic languages are those that have like a set alphabet, right? And each symbol is just like a nonsensical symbol in itself. Like a T is just, t -t -t, right? It doesn't mean anything on its own. It has zero meaning. And we have an alphabet with a significant, just a, a, a set number of letters or symbols in it. And we use those and we, we arrange them sequentially and into words and then those words sequentially into sentences and we begin to think in, in kind of a linear form through things that we're doing. Now linguists are talking about this, they're trying to, uh, I don't know that there's totally a consensus on how different languages make us think, but in ideographic languages like Mandarin, the Chinese language of Mandarin and so on, and I was asking a friend of mine who is a, a missionary to uh, Chinese-speaking people, and he has learned the language and so on, if this is true, he couldn't really tell me one way or the other uh, whether this reflects itself in culture, but it is interesting to think about the fact that in ideographic languages, the symbols are meaningful in themselves. And maybe you put two of them together and so on, but they make words, they make sentences and so on. And in the uh, traditional Chinese language, it contains thousands upon thousands of symbols that representing different words and terms and ways to think. It's more graphical, more... Um, symbolic in the way it's written, in the way it's understood, and so on. So it changes. It might possibly have an effect on the way different cultures think about different things. Now think about how this works out, because in modern language today, we are changing rapidly away from uh, long sentences, you know, detailed literary works. We're changing to like, emoji symbols, which started actually in Japan, that are worldwide, right? Anyone in any culture can put a smiley face on their text and everyone knows what they mean by that, or kind of get a sense of what they mean by it, right? And they keep creating, I, there's a whole keyboard now of emojis. They're all there and they're being added to all the time. And we talk through them. And so, sometimes I read these things, I have no clue what this means. I have no idea. I'm not 16 anymore, right? But you know what I mean? The language seems to be evolving. We can actually look at a Nike symbol now. We don't need to see the word Nike underneath. We know what it is. We see it with the apple, right? With the bite in it. We know what it is. We don't have to see the actual word behind it. So language is changing. It's becoming more symbolic. And 
maybe even more universal and so on, and it's going to affect the way we think. Just something to think. But this one is only a stepping stone to the next one, and that was the Gutenberg printing press. And this one provided individual access to information that people did not have before. Okay, so in the first century, in the early church, uh, theology was often put into hymns and sung uh, in order that Christians would memorize the truth because they didn't have Bibles at home. You had to go to the church to read the Bible. And you didn't just read it by yourself, you read it with others collectively. Bible studies were a community event. They were very communal. Bibles were not readily available. But Johannes Gutenberg, a German goldsmith in 1436, he began working on the creation of a press that could print and he could change out the pressed letters very quickly because they were all just interchangeable, uh, that could print, uh, pardon me, uh, material on a mass scale. By 1454, right in the middle of the 15th century, Gutenberg's press was being used commercially to print, guess what, religious material. First thing it was used for. What did that lead to? Well, it led to the 16th century and the Reformation. Because what happened in the process was people had access to their own information now, individually. A church that once was marked by collectivism, there it is again, right? Community, everything was about the community. Very little was about individuals at the time reading the text for themselves, gathered around the single text, and they listened to a single source interpret the text and so on. That's what they did. But the printed material put this material right into the hands of people like Martin Luther and others like him. And through it, not only did the Christian faith become individualistic and led to the Reformation in which people started thinking for themselves, interpreting scripture for themselves, and now... And uh, what the Roman Catholic Church warned would happen actually happened that uh, the church splintered into a million pieces. Yes, it did. It splintered. They warned Luther that that would happen. I don't believe that's a bad thing. I believe that is actually a very healthy thing. It keeps us challenged and iron sharpening iron and so on. Uh, but it changed the way Christians experience and walk in their faith, didn't it? Because many of you, either you have it on your phones, and this is actually just another extension of the idea of individually having the Bible, right? But you may have it in printed form, but the fact that you can get up in the morning and actually go and open your Bible and read the text just you and God is something that uh, the early church did not have in the way that we have until the Gutenberg printing press, right? Technology changed the culture. Technology changed the course of the church. That's fascinating stuff. Today, I want you to think of where this has led us. Because we've become so individualistic in our culture because of this, because of laptops, because of iPads, because of YouTube and Netflix and so on, we have become so individualistic. This is McLuhan. One of the other things McLuhan did was he would say, okay, where is this technology going to go if we push it to its extreme?" So with radio, he would say, if we push radio to its extreme, we're going to end up with television, and we're going to actually be able to see the broadcast, not just hear it. 
But today, the Gutenberg printing press push it to its extreme. What do we have? People have Christians have become so individualistic that technology today has led us to believe we don't have to gather personally with the church anymore. We can worship the Lord in our living room or in our dimly lit basement while watching a performance, a sermon on the screen. Where did that come from? Technology shaped culture. And I would suggest as well that it made an idol. Here we go. The, the, the next one, the telegraph gave us instant information. This is the beginning of the email and the internet and so on. And now streaming and everything else that we can get. You know how, you know, when, when YouTube delays just a brief moment or Facebook delays and you, or, you know, Netflix or whatever it is. And you're just like, come on, it's been, it feels like it's been an hour, but it's actually been, you know, two seconds. Like there's something wrong with my Wi-Fi. What's going on? You know, and you're ready to call customer support and, and give them a piece of your mind because it's just not, you know what I mean? Well, it all started with a telegraph. Back in the early 1800s, British officials at one time, they set up a system that was called the semaphore chain. And they had towers with lights in them at high points along the coast in Britain that could actually communicate with code from London to Portsmouth Naval Base through this chain. And what they would do is they'd flash lights from tower to tower to tower to tower to tower. And the message would travel about 85 miles in about 15 minutes. All right, that's decent. That's better than the, the dude on the horse, you know, carrying the mailbag, you know, riding, riding along. Uh, it, it's decent. Okay, that's an improvement. But there was an American professor, Samuel Morse, uh, who invented, here come the Americans again, eh? Invented a method of sending, I can say that by the way, my wife's American, so. Uh, invented a, a method of sending electromagnetic sing- signals in the 1830s. And soon, they were laying cable across the oceans, not just from country to country, but across the Atlantic Ocean and so on, so that they could actually telegraph, send these electromagnetic signals from Britain to the US and so on. And by the end of the 1800s, much of the globe was wired for this type of communication. It's like the first primitive form of the internet. Now we have satellites and everything else that do a lot of the dirty work for us. But at the end of the 19th century, this form of sending these signals through wires took flight, literally. And it was discovered that you could send telegraphs wirelessly through the air with electromagnetic radiation. So one of the, I, I love stories from the Titanic. And one of the big stories from the Titanic was the story of the, the radio guys, the radio operators on the ship who were, they had this new, this new commodity on the ship, this new wireless radio. And they were sending out all these Morse codes of all these messages that all the wealthy elites were like paying them money to send out that Aunt Mary had roast beef for dinner and things like that. And the wireless operators on the night the ship went down, they were just furiously trying to get through this stack of messages that was just piling up frivolous, trivial stuff. And every once in a while, a message would come in from another ship to tell them about, you know, be careful, there's ice out there and so on. And finally, the, the, sh- the last ship that sent them a message was like right 
with almost within sight of them, not very far away. And it just blasted their eardrums in their headphones. And they sent a message back basically telling this ship to shut up. We've had enough. Don't bother us again. And the, the, the operators on the other ship actually shut everything down and they went to bed for the night. They gave up, went to bed. And it wasn't long after that that the Titanic hit the iceberg and tried to radio for help. And guess what? Nobody would hear them anymore because they had basically told everyone to be quiet and go, go home, right? You get the idea? That's, uh, it's, I love the stories for Titanic. But, uh, but again, it was the result of this new commodity. It was a brand new thing that, you know, and everyone wanted to use it. It was the beginning of instant information. And now, I mean, we watch sports, we watch game shows, we watch our movies, we watch tragedies happen in real time. Not movies, but tragedies happen in real time. Everything's instant. I mean, that's got to have some kind of effect, doesn't it? Well, that's the question. How has media affected our present culture? What has it done? What is the aftermath? Well, the first thing is information overload. With technology today increasing exponentially, the sources of information are limitless. Television, streaming, internet, Twitter, Facebook, newspapers, maybe on websites. Anybody read a newspaper anymore? I don't even know if they, maybe... I don't know. Yeah, some of you. So, some people just like holding paper in their hands. And that's, that's cool. I, uh, I don't. Uh, but we get our news from all sorts. Uh, blogs, books, smartphone apps, radio, podcasts, satellite radio. Where does the Bible fit into all of this? Does the Bible speak into information overload? Well, yes, it does. Solomon, in all of his complaining about everything under the sun, said, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There's no end. In other words, there's no end to the information. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. That is scientifically a fact. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Your brain can hold a remarkable amount of information. In fact, the claim is that your brain can hold about the same amount of information as the internet in its entirety. That is incredible. We have an incredible creator. I don't know how you can hear a fact like that and still try to say that there is no God that it all happened by accident when we can't possibly create something that small to hold that much information. But while that might be true, it has its limits and it can suffer from overstimulation. This is also a fact. With so many voices competing for space in our minds and the data is trying to get in through different ports all the time, trying to get through the same door, we have a traffic jam and our minds are filled with a dull roar of this chatter 24-7. It's always there. Our minds are not quiet. There have been links that have been made, and I'm sure more studies will come out about this overstimulation of the brain. There have been links that have been made to dementia, 
neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, links that have been made to mood swings, physical health issues, lack of concentration, and the list goes on and on and on because we do not have quiet minds anymore. They're just buzzing all the time with too much information. Secondly, enslavement. That crazy compulsion. I'm trying to t- pick I'm trying to teach a class, but I feel like I need to pick this up and check something. That crazy compulsion to pick your phone up and check nothing and find out, yes, there's still nothing going on. But I still have to pick it up. It's been 15 minutes. Do you own your technology or does your technology own you? We have people that are addicted to scrolling, just sitting there. TikTok has to be the worst for this, right? And then someone had the bright idea, let's put TikTok on Facebook. Isn't that a great idea? Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. What are you looking at? Nothing. My mind's numb. I have no idea what I'm doing right now. People addicted to illicit, illicit material that masters them, that entices their lusts and passions. Maybe you can't be without your phone for a few minutes without worrying that someone might be trying to get in touch with you. Wouldn't that be tragic if I waited more than five minutes to return someone's text? They might think that I'm mad at them, right? We, this is our culture. This is the way we think. Or here's one, parents. You think your children need a phone since all the other kids their age have one. They don't. I don't, I don't know why we buy into that kind of a lie. They don't. So at a certain age now, we've kind of navigated this with our kids. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but yeah, there have been times when kid one, kid two, kid three, doesn't matter. Hey, uh, you know, I need a phone. Uh, my other friends have them, whatever. Ah, okay. You can get one as soon as you can afford it. Go for it. All right. You gotta, first of all, you get them like an iPod or something. Still have Wi-Fi with it. You treat, you know, you teach them little by little some responsibility with the little thing before they get the bigger thing and so on, right? Sorry. I don't know why we have to think that because the culture says your kids need to have screens in front of their eyes all the time that we do too. We don't. And all we're doing is teaching our kids how to be little slaves of these masters. Uh, the next one. That was my rant, by the way. I'm over that. We can move on. It's like therapy for me. Uh, Instant gratification. I think you saw this one coming from the telegraph that introduced a pathway that has only sped up over time. We are upset if our laptops and smartphones hesitate for even a brief second. I have to have the latest iPhone. My iPhone 8 is not keeping up. It, it makes me wait an extra second to load the apps. Okay, so that's worth, what, a thousand bucks, whatever it is? Or, and, and then you get slave, enslaved by the, uh, 
the phone plans and everything else, which is another story, but instant gratification. We just have to have it. We have to have it now, right? Everything, food, everything. We, we can't wait for it. We have to have it now. Meanwhile, Scripture upholds patience as a direct result of the Holy Spirit within us. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. Over and over again, we are told in Scripture to wait on the Lord. Part of walking with the Lord is learning how to wait for Him. Wait on Him. His timing isn't slow. His timing isn't fast. His timing is perfect. So Joseph had to learn how to wait for 13 years in Egypt before God put him on a throne and made it clear what it was all about. David had to wait years and years to be put on the throne. And even when he was put on the throne, it was only a partial rule for a while. Abraham had to wait till he was 100 years old to see the promise of God fulfilled. We're taught to wait in Scripture, but culture says, don't wait. If you have to wait, it's wrong. Take it and take it now. Here's the next one, identity. This is a big one, identity crises. Uh, if you've watched the Netflix show, uh, The Social Dilemma, then you have seen this. This is obviously a concern, even from those within the industry itself. I'll tell you a little story. A number of years ago, a friend of mine on the Chatham Police Force told me a story of a call that he had made just that day on the police force to a home in which a teenage girl had tried to take her own life and had failed to do so. The reason she had tried to take her own life was because her boyfriend had talked her into sending an illicit picture of herself. And in her quest to be affirmed by a boy, she did it. And the next thing you know, the picture is spread throughout the entire high school and she is devastated to the point of wanting to end her own life. In fact, this was a battle-hardened police officer that was talking to me. He's seen everything. And he said, I want to, he says, I can't get it out of my mind. It has probably been the hardest call I've ever been to. And he said, what is so despairing about it is feeling so helpless to realize she's probably going to try again. Technology that was meant to help us has the ability to destroy us with just the click of a button. That's, that's, that's mind-blowing to think that something could be sent on this with just a send that could ruin your life or at least give the portrayal that it has ruined your life? Where does it come from? People, not just young people, but people seeking affirmation from people they don't even know, putting things out, publishing things about themselves that really no one other than people who are close to you should ever know. But why are we doing it? to build an identity, to make something of ourselves, to construct an image of who I am that people will believe. And yet the psalmist, and uh, by the way, first of all, the social dilemma actually goes into the whole idea of 
um, the ways in which, whether it's Instagram filters, are putting imperfect, these, these perfect uh, standards on girls especially, who are vulnerable to that and seeking to reach that perfect standard. I would say others in middle age maybe see perfect standards of their houses and their styles of houses and things like that and try to reach those perfect standards, whatever it is. But the social dilemma actually discusses this in the ways in which uh, such things like Instagram filters are creating this perfect world that no one can attain. And many have spiraled into depression, despair, and suicide, or just lifelong preoccupation with perceived physical flaws. And meanwhile, the psalmist at the same time speaks into culture and says, but you, God, formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that tonight, by the way? That's an act of faith if you believe that. The culture says, no, your affirmation has to come from horizontal, from what others think of you, how others approve of you, whether others think you're beautiful or smart or talented and so on. The psalmist says, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's God's truth. That's God's word. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven, intricately woven. Just think of the terms that are being used here. God didn't just slap you together. That's the point. He intricately, thoughtfully wove you together in the depths of the earth. The psalmist says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. But our culture is living inside an identity crisis. The next one is distraction. We live in a very distracted culture, right? <laughs> I, have a, I, have a, I don't know if he's a puppy anymore. Mini Golden Doodle, I love this dog, but he's not very smart. He's smart in some ways. He responds to commands, but the moment he sees a squirrel, he's dumb. It's just like an instinct, right? And he's gone. It doesn't matter what it is, he just can't help himself. And at that point, there's no command in the world that's going to stop him. You know, our culture, myself included, reflect this. This distraction, we're always distracted. On to the next thing. Everything around us, there's, you know, bells and whistles and noises and, and news and everything else is just going off all around us. And we always have to be overstimulated in our brains. So in addition to instant information, we can no longer focus for extended periods of time. I'm amazed at how well you're all doing for two hours on these nights. That's great. That's countercultural right there on a single subject or object. That's why blogs are short, vlogs are short, TV programs, they need breaks, commercials, because we get bored, fall asleep, 
I mean, it's almost to the point where you stream these binge series that can't even make it through a three-hour movie anymore. Like, oh, when is this going to end? What's the point, right? Our brains are being trained. Books seem daunting. It's like, a, pick up a book. Like, really? It's got like more than 100 pages. What do I do with this? It's going to take me five years. We can't focus long enough to even pray or spend time with God. And yet again, the psalmist, Psalm 119.10, with my whole heart, I seek you. My whole heart, devoted, focused on you, God. Let me not wander from your commandments. Don't let me get distracted. David got distracted. He saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. He got distracted. He got off his game. And it led, it devastated his life. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Distractions. Next one, sleeplessness. We're going to get to some answers, by the way, in a little bit. So have no fear of that. Sleeplessness. Lack of sleep. The blue light that screens provide, you know, now they're, they're starting to make it not so blue and they're giving you night light. Uh, options so you can keep your screens on longer. But the constant scrolling leads to wasted time, overstimulation of the mind, blue light in your eyes. All of that leads to insomnia, all of which lead to not getting enough sleep at night. Folks, sleep is not just a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. It is. The Bible tells us to sleep. Psalm 127, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. It's in vain. What are you running around for and bragging about the fact that you only need four hours of sleep a night because after all, your life is so important. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Four, listen to this. This is why the psalmist is saying this. It's vain that you're doing all this. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Four, God gives to his beloved sleep. If you're not sleeping... There's a spiritual problem in your life. Let me check that for a moment. There can be physical problems. There can be, but quite often in what it is with technology today, many of us are not sleeping because we're buzzing. Our brains are buzzing. We're never shutting them off. They're loud. We have too many voices. I'm not talking about physiological issues here. In scripture, sleeping is an act of humility. It's a way of admitting again that I'm not God. So when I go to sleep, what I'm saying is the God who never sleeps is going to take care of things. It's not on me to take care of things. That's not on me. He's going to use me as his tool, but I'm no more than that. That's all I am. I'm just a servant, and part of being a servant is to get enough sleep. I'm going to get into how we respond to that in a little bit. Put on my dad hat for a bit, okay? Uh, Number seven, instability. We're double-mindedness. We're a culture that's marked by a lack of conviction and an abundance of wavering. The overload of arguments on multiple subjects leaves us unsure of everything. We don't even know what truth is anymore, whether it's absolute. One person comes into our social media feed and says one thing and another says another thing and we're not sure where to go. And people who are sure are labeled as radicals. 
And so James says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Our technology and the advancement of it has led to double-mindedness. Next, relationships with each other. This is a problem. We've become hyper-individualistic in our society. We've become very lonely. We're a society that habitually self-promotes. Look where I've been. Look what I'm doing. Look what I had for dinner. Look who I met. Look how much fun I'm having. Look how beautiful I am. Just look at me. Rod Dreher says, young people today are living in illusions, perhaps none greater than that they are part of a real social network. And with all of our social media, we've become very disconnected. Facebook has cheapened the reality of a friend and made it a verb instead of a noun. Tinder has cheapened sexual intimacy. I was driving uh, to a job site in the U.S. with a, a younger guy that was working for me at, a, at the time. Um, and we were chatting. He, he's of a generation just, I guess, behind myself and uh, not a believer. He was engaged and he was getting married soon. And I was asking him about what his generation thinks of commitment. And he said, there is none. There is no commitment. He said, I'm surrounded by friends who, if they get into a fight, say they're dating someone, they get into a fight, um, they don't stick around to see that conflict through. Why would you? Because Tinder has allowed you to swipe right on the next individual and have someone new by that evening. It's cheapened intimacy into being something that is more physical than emotional, spiritual, and relational. Zoom and YouTube have cheapened the physical gathering of God's people or of people in general. Try having a family reunion on Zoom. I mean, I guess if you have to, you have to, but not ideal. Not ideal. It's cheapened the idea of gathering face-to-face, person-to-person, especially in the church. People can text, texting. Isn't it amazing to watch people in the same room? And meanwhile, they're talking to the guy across the room and you see them both laugh at the same time. (laughs) Just go over there and talk to them. Doesn't this seem absurd? Our relationships, face-to-face conversation is not quite what it used to be. Yeah, it's changed us. Whether we like it or not, it has changed us. The next one, relationship to the world around us. We're so engrossed with the images on our screen, say Instagram for one. We'll get into what all this means in a moment as we link this back to idolatry, but we're engrossed in the images on our screens that we're failing to appreciate God's real creation 
all around us. Technology, technology has us looking down rather than looking up. And again, the psalmist in Psalm 8 said, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, it's very different looking at the moon on a television screen and looking at the moon through a telescope. Or just looking up into the sky at night. And the psalmist says, what is man? When I look at all this, I think to myself, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When was the last time you put your screens away and just went for a walk in nature, looked into the sky and worshiped the creator who made all of that? It's never going to grow old. It never grows old. Smartphones grow old. Technology grows old. God's creation is never going to grow old. And it connects to our souls because we were made for this world. 